on today's episode of The Mythic Masculine. A mythic understanding to life is not perpetually seeking answers, but it is, it is a, your capacity to wonder and to, as an oral storyteller, to, one, to wonder on the tongue, to wonder into time and space. Because actually you find that when you wonder out loud, stuff happens to your mind that doesn't happen when you are just quietly processing. Language does something. There's an old idea in many fairy tales that if you can't articulate your desire, you almost don't deserve to have them. Hmm. You almost don't deserve to have them. And when you give them, uh, Rilke would think of it like this and Bly would think of it like this, when you give them winged language, when they take flight, then uh, you've just gambled with the knuckle bones of wolves. You've displayed yourself to the universe for a moment, you know? What does it mean to be a man today? The old ideas of masculinity are dissolving, and the new expressions are just beginning to rise. In the era of Me Too and biospheric collapse, how might we look to the old myths and archetypes for guidance to navigate this space between stories? This podcast explores the historical, cultural, and contemporary voices that are shaping this dynamic conversation of the emerging masculine. Greetings, dear listener. I'm your host, Ian McKenzie. I'm very excited to introduce my guest today, prolific author and myth teller, Dr. Martin Shaw. I first encountered Martin's writing in the foreword to Stephen Jenkinson's book, Die Wise, and was immediately hooked by the elegant and unruly prose that leapt from the page. I found the same ecstatic spirit in Martin's popular essays and numerous books, including Scatterlings and the more recent Courting the Wild Twin. Over the years, we've crossed paths at numerous teachings and locales, from a small island off the coast of British Columbia to a thousand-year-old pub near Dartmoor National Park in the UK, where he lives. Martin has spent many years as a wilderness rites of passage guide and honed his craft as a myth teller, learning directly with the greats Robert Bly, James Hillman, and Michael Mead, among many others. I knew that one day I needed to speak to Martin about his time in the mythopoetic men's movement, as well as his teaching house, the West Country School of Myth, who are self-described as a school of courtly love disguised as a monastery for elegant pirates. In our interview today, we discussed a range of topics, from the bardic role of the myth-teller, why we are in the underworld but don't know it yet, and how this time of coronavirus might be an invitation into our collective initiation. Martin Shaw, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Would you please begin by sharing a glimpse at where you are in this moment? Certainly, yeah. It is early evening uh, in Dartmoor National Park in Devon. I am in my old stone hunter's cottage next to 500 acres of old-growth forest, uh, old oaks. Uh, there is a river at the bottom of my garden called the Dart River. Uh, and about half a mile away, there is a Celtic hill fort where I've spent an inordinate amount of time. This is a particular time... In the world right now as well and I, we were just chatting briefly earlier and you mentioned the, the streets were fairly empty and i wonder if you might describe yeah what is the what is the feeling tone of of these days there well you know some would call it empty 
but you could also look at it as pregnant. You could also look at it as pregnant, uh, which I'm a great fan of. So, you know, you look up in the air, I can't see any planes. I can't hear any cars. Uh, I am down to my last bottle of wine. I've got one duck egg uh, for breakfast tomorrow. And I've just done 14 days straight simply to be reunited with my daughter. So there's a kind of... Uh, spaciousness around at the moment my background one of the things I've been doing for a long time is wilderness rites of passage so I'm familiar with long periods alone in forests or by rivers on the top of mountains sort of you know in the old sense of the old sense of the phrase crying for vision and whilst I don't pretend for a second that as a culture everyone is doing that it is certainly a curious moment. Let's put it that way. You wrote a piece a little while ago, which uh, I really enjoyed. And I, I can't remember the exact title, but it said something like, we are in the underworld and we don't know it yet. Yeah. And I wonder if you'd speak to that, actually, from uh, when you were writing it at the time, which was before you know coronavirus and the whole lockdown, and, and suddenly here we are. And there was a number of phrases in that, actually, that were hunting in their beauty. And uh, I would just love for you to to reflect upon that now. I think the first thing I should let you know, Ian, uh, because very few people will know this, is that on the day, on the morning I even found out about the coronavirus, I had just finished, I had just walked into the cottage from a 101-day ceremony in the forest next to where I live. For 101 days, I'd gone there in a very simple, humble way and just listened. I just said, look, it was, I went in around the time of all the Extinction Rebellion stuff and people were asking me to go to London and make lots of social commentary on it. And I knew in my gut uh, I needed to do something, but it was not going to be in the public eye. It was going to be a private form of listening. So I underwent something that I call calling songs. And it's very simple. I went to the woods every day with a calling song. I would tell a story, recite a poem, but in some way give it libation. And then I would just see what showed up, what was drawn to it. As that encounter deepened, I moved into a place I recognise very much from wilderness vigils where your own imagination starts to brush up against uh, something that is more than entirely human. And by the end of it, I was well and truly in the mysteries. So I had just literally crawled out of that encounter when someone said, oh, there's this thing called coronavirus, I don't think it'll last for long. So I am oddly sensitised at this particular moment to the notion of vigil, the notion of solitude. It, before that, I'd written an article called We're in the Other World and We Don't Know It Yet, where I had a feeling that on a subtle, chronic level, we were shifting culturally, societally, into all the attributes which as a mythologist, I identify as the underworld, not the other world, but the underworld. Uh, what I couldn't have anticipated was um, 
how literalized that was going to become within a few months. How do you know, how do we know that we are in the underworld? What are the indications? Well, this isn't quite answering the question. I'll, I'll go round in peculiar circles, but it's not out of disrespect. It's just the way that my mind works. One of the things that you know if you're in the underworld is that you are, you're dealing with a big word. You're dealing with the word initiation. And a big question at the moment for a lot of people, and bearing in mind we are only seconds into this experience, and the question I'm being asked all the time uh, virtually now, is are we in an initiation experience? Does it deserve the title? And actually my response is yes, that we are. But it's not an initiation that is curated by human beings. So in other words, you can't relate it for too long to say a village type ceremony or something coming from an indigenous culture. We do not have a circle of well-seasoned adults walking us from one end of this to the other. We are in much wilder, more unpredictable territory, and this initiation is being curated by the earth itself. So that's the first thing, is let's take the human-centeredness out of the notion of what means initiation. Secondly... And this is a question for everybody, and I cannot answer it as a general mass, is initiation means specificity. It means specificity. So the question for all of us in about a year's time, not now, in a year's time is this. What have I and we been initiated into? So those are the kind of things that I'm curious about at the moment. Even though I would claim, uh, and it's just my opinion, even though I would claim that this is an initiatory moment, I'm not claiming it is what you could call in the long run a successful initiatory experience. So think about this. Um, three guys go off to war. Everybody, I think, by and large, would say that war in the way that most people understand it, is an initiation. The three men come back. One of them commits suicide. One of them becomes an alcoholic. And one of them decides to do some work with their soul. But they all had the initiation. We can't fixate just on the encounter. We have to fixate or think or brood onto how we curate and grow with it after. What's so unique about what is happening now is that I never personally have seen we are being called en masse to enter this experience. So in other words, there aren't people waiting for us back home, cheering us on, having gone through this already. We're all in this. So I'm not pretending for a moment that it isn't chaotic, it isn't messy, and there isn't a lot of fear. And what I do know is that when those things are in place, when you really do feel that the world potentially is being turned upside down, that for me is attributes of the underworld. Well, I'd love to keep that arrow in the air for a moment and actually circle right back to 
I understand your own encounter uh, where you were driven or possessed to spend four years, I believe, in a tent <laughs> out, out, and and that kind of encounter. What drew you to that encounter as part of you know this longer arc of your ability to recognize you know this time and and what it called you? Okay, so we're going back in time a little bit, uh, a couple mm-hmm. of decades. I, in my early twenties, when I was about twenty three, I ended up fasting for four days and nights uh, near, not on top of, but very near a mountain in Wales in Snowdonia called Cudder Idris. And on the last night of this long, protracted, rather boring, occasionally terrifying experience, I got absolutely catapulted into an encounter with what people would regard as spirits. Uh, It lasted about eight hours and that's only eight hours in our dimension of time. I was over there forever, you know. So when I came back, I suddenly realised, as the uh, poets say, I had to change my life. So I had to turn my head entirely in the direction that that experience was pointing me towards. Thank God this was just before multitasking. I didn't have a phone in my pocket. I wasn't a father. Uh, I didn't have a computer. There was no email. I just left. In those days, you could still just leave. So I left and was lucky enough to come into the sort of the orbit of two men uh, who really deserve being mentioned. One was called David Wendelberry, is called David Wendelberry, uh, who's a wilderness guide, and an astonishing teacher called Nicholas Twilley, uh, who, as well as being a drummer, just has a a deep sense of the soul of things. And so I had models as a young man. I do, I do feel that men generally, we need to see something sort of displayed. We like to see something exteriorized before we really go, God almighty, I could, I could, I could try to become myself in that way. So I went out of view, Ian, for four years, really, to deal. I basically spent a year chewing on every day I'd spent out there fasting. During that time, I I had an eight-year apprenticeship as a wilderness vigil guide. People would think of it as the word vision quest uh, with David Wendelberry. And then, imperceptibly, I realised that the way I wanted to talk about these deep encounters was through myth. Because if I talked about them um, directly one of two things was going to happen. A, people think that I'm mentally ill, or or B, you become a, a, a charismatic guru type. And both of those things actually are not attractive to me. So mm-hmm. I realised that stories could flag up the reality of my consciousness without it constantly having to be about me. Does that make any sense? Mm-hmm. So that's that's where this began for me. I think it was Robert Bly and Iron John who said that the, I think he might have used the phrase mythic imagination, or that you know mon- modern culture has really lost its mythic imagination. And part of what I, I love to speak to in this podcast is to begin to reanimate the listener's understanding of what that actually means. Because you know, for so many, the word myth even these days usually means 
something that's not true, right? Or something that didn't happen. Oh, it's a myth. And yet the way that you use myth and, and this more older tradition of myth telling is a very different understanding of what myth is. And so I'd love for you just to illuminate your understanding of what, what it is to be a myth teller and what are you in service to? It's always hard when I'm asked these questions to genuinely re-inhabit my response and not trot something out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because there's like immediately a thousand sound bites at my disposal. And I won't do that. To think in myth for me is a moment, a moment in your life of such depth that you realize the facts of the matter don't carry the story of the matter. The old phrase, I'm sure you have it in America, in England, we have this, you know, cutting to the chase. That cuts the soul as well as anything else. Prolong the chase. Prolong it in your romantic relationships. Prolong, prolong, prolong. Uh, I'm not a fan of the quick route. So, so for me, a mythic understanding to life is not perpetually seeking answers, but it is, it is a, your capacity to wonder and to, as an oral storyteller, to, won, to wonder on the tongue to wonder into time and space because actually you find that when you wonder out loud stuff happens to your mind that doesn't happen when you are just quietly processing language does something there's an old idea in many fairy tales that if you can't articulate your desire you almost don't deserve to have them Hmm. you almost don't deserve to have them and when you give them uh, Rilke would think of it like this and Bly would think of it like this when you give them winged language when they take flight then uh, you've just gambled with the knuckle bones of wolves, you've displayed yourself to the universe for a moment you know, and you'll know you're on the right track because you start to piss people off <laughs> you know, mm. you you're, you won't be smooth anymore uh, you will have opinions. Uh, I'm not saying for a second you're a tyrant or a bully. It's nothing like that. But actually, stories and the carrying of stories do come with a price tag. I find this with my students. Uh, I've said this many times before. The general sensation when a young scholar turns up at my door, usually the subtext is this phrase, you know, I want to be heard. I want to be heard. And there'll be a bit of a wrestling match around that. But then the stories really get to work on them. And the efficacy of the stories gets to work on them to a point where usually by the end of at least the first year with me, it's moved, the question has shifted on its access or the statement from, I want to be heard to how do I speak? Because myth says, as, and you know, this is a generalization, but I'm going to stand by it. Myth encourages the notion that language has a radical agency to it. You know, there's those old Inuit poems of when words were like magic. 
that actually you shift your relatedness to everything through speech. But the stories have to know if you're serious. The stories, as far as I can tell, are living, troublesome beings. So the thing to notice, if you're interested in stories, is if there's areas of the stories that are utterly mysterious to you, if they are absent from your psychic life, think twice about telling them yet. Because as soon as you start that incant, to some degree, you are encouraging that being to your door. And that's when you need your libation program sorted out and the rest of it. I'm in service. I wrote a little essay the other day called uh, Keeping the Smoke Hole Open. In Siberia, if you want to assassinate someone, ancient Siberia, the first thing you had to do was close the top of the tent so God couldn't see what you were about to do. And the notion was that if you close the smoke flap, you lose your connection to the divine world. So to be honest, I could give you all sorts of... uh, highfalutin descriptions of what I'm in service to, but really what my kid would tell you I'm in service to is keeping the smoke hole open. Mm. Beautiful. You encountered somewhere along the line then the, what maybe what's understood to be the mythopoetic men's movement. Yeah. I understand. Yeah. And I wonder how that came about from uh, your own four years in the tent to, you know, writes a passage guide to, being gotten by myth and when did that encounter now happen with the men's movement it was it was independent actually um i was living in my early 20s in a men's hostel in london things were pretty desperate pretty grisly uh and i got given as a birthday present i was given a library card so i could go and get books out so i go to the library and sure enough Uh, This would have been a few years after it had come out. There's Iron John, a book for men, Robert Bly. I take Mm. it home. And first of all, I, I, I'm, it's familiar in a way because I'm not, because I'm, I'm Anglo-Irish. I've grown up in Devon. I've been around the mythopoetic my whole life. Mm. You know, my father is still in his sixties. We have a good relationship. Same with my mum. I'm, this is the water I have been baptised in. What was interesting, though, for me was how Bly, the amount of poetry he brought in was extraordinary. And I had never seen a fairy tale be taken so seriously as he took it that the whole book, the whole narrative of the book, can be divided into sections and explored as, you know, a form of, you know, uh, knowledge of the psyche. I thought it was, mm. I thought it was really exciting. You will know that at that time, the sort of the wonderful three-headed monster of the mythopoetic movement was Robert Bly, James Hillman, uh, and the great Michael Mead. And just for any of your new viewers uh, or listeners, actually, I want to make it really clear, Mead was not the junior party in this he is a brilliant and learned man and he if you bear in mind for a second both hillman and bly were famous by the time the men's movement got started bly's won the national book award 
Hillman has uh, written Revisioning Psychology. We're all in shock from these amazing statements. But Michael Mead is not so well known, but comes in off the bat and restores story to its absolutely central position in that movement. And for characters as bullish as they were, and I say that with a big smile, the fact that they managed to hold it together as friends under that kind of pressure for so long, well, all I can say is there's millions, I'm serious, millions of men out there that deserve to thank them for that. What did you find yourself then? I mean, here you are in Devon, I understand that you've you know found the book and suddenly, yeah, was it, was it you've headed to america at some point to no, encounter them directly no or? there's a longer a bit of a longer story so i'm living in this men's hostel it's funny pete townsend from the who was living across the road uh it, very mm-hmm. different lifestyle to me living on 75 pounds a week but i loved it and i saw that what i knew was as a wilderness rites of passage guide i'd never seen anybody take that mythopoetic frame and put it or integrate it into wilderness rites of passage, which is a very particular thing. And we wouldn't know about it in the West if it wasn't for two people, uh, Stephen Foster and Meredith Little and the School of Lost Borders. They absolutely, categorically are the ones that in the early 70s revived this or introduced it to a Western climate. So what's going on, in in my young, mad mind mm. is... What Bly is doing and Mead is doing and Hillman is doing and, and all of those guys. And actually, to be fair, I also want to speak up. I read Clarissa Pinkola Estes just as much as I did Bly. I read uh, Marion Woodman just as much as I did or the woman in a way that stands behind them, who's Marie-Louise von France, without which Iron John would be a very different book. So mm. I just wanted, I just thought the whole thing was un believably exciting i just couldn't believe that the waywardness of these ideas were allowed to exist i thought they should all be in prison you know (laughs) so um what i started to do on the desolate the desolate hillsides and moor sides of britain was to tell stories when i was leading groups and then i heard of a very long-running conference that bly ran called the great mother conference which is it's moved all over America. It's very old. It's the oldest conference of its kind, started in the mid-70s. I found out that there was a way you could apply for a scholarship, but you had to get something called an email. And I was like, oh, fuck, I don't know what an email is. <laughs> but I, I managed to track down what an email was from, you know, from my tent, sent, sent this thing off. And then I remember you know, a friend rang me up and was like, you've got this thing, you've got to go to this place called America. Now, I'd never been to America before. America, for me, is where you all sailed off from Plymouth Dock, you know? You live in, you live, you don't live in the underworld, but you certainly live in the other world. You live where we sent all our heroes to recover and to die. So, for me, every, all the time I'm in America, I'm always aware I'm in a kind of other world for my temperament. But anyway, I fly over. The whole thing is hugely excited. I get robbed at Newark Airport. First thing that happened, is that I miss my flight. I get kicked wow. out. I get kicked out. So I'm sleeping on the street outside the airport and I'm woken up by a guy with his hand in my bag next to me and he's got my, um, 
my passport. Hmm. And great move. This is my first conversation in America. And he looks at me and says, thank God you're awake. And then spun me this incredible trickster story about how he was actually an incredibly successful lawyer who'd also missed his flight and all his family had suddenly died and he realised he had no money (laughs) and he just had to get back to Georgia. And he was dripping with sweat as he was telling me this. And do you know what I did? I kept the narrative going with him. I kept the storytelling going, Ian. I said, Mm. I said, wow, this is terrible. This is terrible. I said, look, look, I want to help you, man. I really want to help Mm. you. So you just give me the passport back. I don't know where that's going to go. But listen, you know, (laughs) here's a few bucks. God bless. So he leaves and I am shattered by this experience. That's my first conversation in America. Then three hours later, I'm on the little flight from Newark up to Portland, Maine. And the next thing that happens, I've met, within the space of about an hour, it seems, I met Robert Bly, Coleman Barks, uh, Galway Cannell, uh, and on and on and on. And they just sort of held me down, really, and, and just looked after me and changed my life. You know, I was... I was different after that encounter. It's a nine-day conference. I went on to lead it for 10 years. I just retired last week. Uh, And what a blessing that was. And Bly, as a man, was um, very powerful, very brilliant, bit of a bully on occasion, tremendous leader, and more than anything... What I loved about Robert, and this for me was a very unusual thing, Robert Bly is someone that would change his opinion on an ar- in an argument if you were good enough. If you were convincing enough, because Robert used to pick his scraps sometimes in public, so you've got to be made of stern stuff when you're in front of the congregation and you're getting roasted. But if you can pull that off, if you could display that kind of courage under fire... He is your faithful companion for life and extremely generous. But what I noticed about him earlier on was he will say something outrageous, as he's often said, just to see what happens. But if you can, if not exactly match it, but counter it, you would often see him soften, quieten, turn it around in his soul. And on occasion, he'd say, you know, I got this all wrong. I got this all wrong. And that, for me, watching a grown-up, whether it's a man or a woman, function like that, that was impressive to me. Hmm. What did you encounter in the culture of America, then, that you you didn't maybe anticipate? Or like, particularly around men's work and this whole idea of the men's movement. So I come into men's work in, you know, you could call it the wilderness years. <laughs> you really, really could call it the wilderness years. So sort of mid 2000s in 2006 nothing is happening as set you've had you've had this original triad and and to be and I am I am being as you know all sorts of other teachers that I could mention as well as as Hillman Bly and Mead but they're the ones most people are familiar with um you've had the explosion of Martin Prechtel 
on that world, of which most people are still recovering from just the kind of genius he is. Uh, you've got Maladoma Somme coming in. You do have, with the men's work, and it's, it's again, it's praise to mead with mosaic, a genuine understanding that it, it, it sucks if it's white land all the time. They, they did, mm. as best as middle-aged guys can be, they really tried to get the memo. But by the time I arrive, um, all the guys, I guess, that were in their 40s when they encountered this are now in their mid-60s. And the danger with all conferences is that it becomes a place where you get your annual tune-up. You get to do the sweat, you get to cry with your guys, you get to, you know, hear, hear Robert, who you love, and then you go home again. Let me tell you, buddy, that counts for nothing in my world, or very little, because it doesn't grow corn once you're 50 foot from the conference. Mm. And so I was young enough. I mean, I, I, yeah, I'm embarrassed almost by the fact that I got any airplay at all at that age. I'm, I just cringe. But I did have chutzpah and I was able to stand up and I was able to say to Robert, this is something, this lacks content now. This actually lacks content. What mm. Mead brought, what Hillman brought, what Robert Moore brought, what they all brought was content. You learnt stuff. It wasn't always about deep feeling. Deep feeling was not the shrine that we all hunkered under. I like those moments, but for me, you can't choreograph them. That's the divine spirit. That just happens. So for me, there was a little bit of a lack of content about it. And for all, you know, I want to throw in another idea is actually in myth, if you have too much soul, you go crazy. Mm. There's idea number one. Everybody wants a more soulful life. Well, really think about that. Because in Greek myth, what you actually want is psyche and eros. You want the soul which is, you could think of that as the watery depths, you know, the great poetic depths, but you need fire. And again, that was something that Mead would do. He, he can initiate, he will spark up. Um, so to be honest, when I got there, and this was a particular conference in, uh, in the Midwest, I was a little distressed by the fact it felt actually too comfortable for me. And the rituals... Well, I'm certainly letting it all hang out today. The rituals were, <laughs> were they were, you know, because these are my friends, you know, these people are my friends, uh, were a little theatrical. They were like conference rituals, whereas I was coming out of long, long periods in the bush. And that's a whole other thing when you've got the wilderness nibbling at you week after week. However, I want to stress this. What I really encountered from the men's work was the guys that had been doing it a long time were really fabulous beings. Um, they were encouraging of younger men. They didn't need to be rock stars. They were not... They were looking to not just affirm you, but bless you. Uh, and I made friendships there, and I saw behaviour modelled that I've never forgotten. Mm. And, you know, actually, as I'm talking to you, I'm realising that the reason I really needed to be there was not 
to do with being noticed by one of these people. It was because I was a young dad. In fact, my daughter was the or was the age that you your child is now, and I needed to sit quietly by the fire every night with guys that were fifteen, twenty, thirty years into it. How do we? How do we display upstandingness? How do we display courage under fire? What does it really mean to move from a mentor to an elder? These were the conversations that were freely given. So I want to counter my earlier gripes about the conferences with the wisdom of actually those two or three back rows of men that had been doing it for a long time. The reason the mythopoetic stuff works, in my opinion, for men is because its roots are ancient. Mm. It's ancient. It is a good thing. It, you know, you, you sit in a room full of men in the half light and hear a story. God almighty, you're into magic before anybody said a word. Just the, the physical reality of that. And of course, what happens is we're all, hungry for it women are desperately hungry for it men are hungry for it all the gradients of gray between those two genders are too you know all, all the colors uh so yeah i'm recalling a pub actually that we sat in i think maybe five years ago now uh, i believe it was in devon or totnes and i think the pub itself was maybe 1100 years old or something like that and uh and i remember i I asked you, I think, at that moment, too, about this time as we sort of just brushed the surface and I said, hey, you know, I'd love to talk with you at some point about this, uh, those days and the movement. And you said to me then, uh, if I recall correctly, nothing will change unless men are willing to talk about porn. Yeah. <laughs> Something like that. And uh, Is this I've always that been moment? <laughs> <laughs> Might be that moment. I've just been always been curious about that because you know conversation spun out and continued on, but uh, but I but I'm curious again. There was something in that that you felt really clear about, and uh, and I would love maybe if this is the moment. Yeah, um, you know, let's just let's just be clear right now. I'm not immune to the lure of porn any more than anyone else's. So this is not mm. Moses sitting here in judgment. <laughs> um, I think my take on it is quite simple. Before we mm. get into other other um issues around porn one is that i think if if you really get hooked into it i think it freezes it freezes your sexual imagination that's what i think it does which is why i have this peculiar theory that um porn is funded by the evangelical movement because in a way it makes it actually do you know what okay this is this is happening to me right now it's my thought porn <laughs> Porn domesticates, by and large. It tells your sexual imagination, it, it, why, it rewires you in a way that does not require the, not just your, these ghastly words like being present, but actually just your full imaginative awakeness to the moment. So... I could go on about this for hours, but that's my essential take on it, is that we need to be wary of anything that corrals and secretly anaesthetizes the eroticism of anybody. Boom. Mm. I love that. It domesticates. Yeah. Um, and, I mean, I'm curious again, how does this jostle with this, uh, the general conversation with men, I mean, in particular related to around this whole idea of soul work and the rest that, um, that it's somehow a, 
it's generally thought of in addictive terms that it's uh you know the partners that are upset but often tolerate it and all this and men carry a deep shame around it um but there's something else that you're speaking to i think even like mythically illuminating yeah the consequence that's it i i don't want to get into uh there's plenty of other places you can go to have a conversation about is it good bad or indifferent for anybody to look at porn that's not really the thing the thing for me is the concern that you actually and and just just to be flat there are many people that would disagree with me on this point hillman wouldn't agree with what i'm saying now he'd have another brilliant very different thought but for me uh by and large as i said it's a kind of sedative there isn't an aphroditic quality to it and again hillman would say there is so don't take my word for it. Uh, and secondly, we are in a moment in time where we need the gods present in many as many different dimensions of our life as possible. Specifically, one of them is the bedroom. Um, I've been telling an old fairy tale a couple of days ago about a... There's a young king who has a guide with him. Think of Merlin. And for one reason or another the guide is frozen into stone and the young king puts the guide next to the bed where he and his wife will make love. And the entire time, the years that they make love, there is the shadow of your frozen guide. You make love in the shadows of a frozen being. Hmm. So please don't think I'm here to be a party pooper. This is not the issue. It's not disapproval or any of that. It's just making sure your guide is alive and you're not working through frozen shadows. Mm. I'm really curious about this idea of the, of the erotic. Um, in particular, I find your writing... Uh, quite textured and quite quite erotic in a way that it like I can feel this um, kind of unruly, uh, you know, wildness in the way that you write. Like it's very sensual, often, and and so I feel like there's something in what you've tapped or your capacity to articulate. I mean, is it is it with that eroticism present? That's what I'm so curious about. Yeah, you you know you know Ian, you're right. And it comes from the four years in the tent. It comes through long periods, not being tremendously, uh, you know, erotically active with the opposite sex, but realizing wonderfully that that doesn't, that doesn't bolt down an erotic relationship to the world in general. Now, I'm not going to go on about this because, because this, Already I can hear it as a franchise. Already I'm bored. If I was listening to this, <laughs> I'd be bored at this moment. I go, oh, God, it's another of, you know, re-centralize your every day. You know, forget that. <laughs> but, but, but the truth is it did happen. And, the, and the, the way it happened is something I'd recommend to, if you are feeling a bit domesticated, if, you're, if your prick has turned to jelly, which is, you know, that's an odd... Isn't that an interesting thing that that's happening? Do you know, here's a phrase for it, Ian. I hope, you, I hope you leave this in. I've got an Irish friend, he's a comedian. And in, in, in Ireland, the, the cases of impotence is now so rife for men of my age, it's called soft Mickey. <laughs> We've got a case of soft Mickey. We've got a case of soft Mickey. And you know what? You can pop a blue pill, but you want to try 
Learning by Heart, Five Stanzas by Pablo Neruda. Try that fucker mm. before you, 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 you do anything else. You know, there's a line, some lines by Neruda. The women lie in cornfields with their hands on their hearts, dreaming of pirates. God almighty, that's beautiful. It's beautiful. Already I'm different. Already I'm changed. So that's all I'm saying. Be as outrageous, you know, in your private life, be as outrageous as you want to be. I don't care. The only time I get involved is when the imagination itself is checking out. There is a meandering to this erotic tale. And for me, it's really about trying to understand maybe what happened to the mytho movement, whereby it seemed to almost spiral in on itself and and in some ways largely go underground, uh, except for, you know, I understand the conference kept going for a number of years and maybe still going until maybe with this coronavirus, right, it may be uh, ended. But I also feel myself as a younger, you know, when I came to this as myself, Iron John, it was 2015. And there's a whole fantastic story, actually, actually how I also encountered the book for the first time uh, from going through my grandfather's things after he died, actually, when I was cleaning up his apartment. So it's a fascinating tale there. Uh, but there's something about turning towards the world that I feel is something I recognize again and again in your writing and what you seem to be advocating for, this, this awakening of a love for the world again, which also I think is paralleled in uh, previously on this podcast, I interviewed uh, Charles Eisenstein, and you know he he's been speaking about the sense of the shift of this archetype of uh, relating to mother, you know, as a mother, the archetype of the mother to a lover. That there's something about this 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 awakening of the lover, and particularly for men in this time, you know, how is that uh, part of the invitation that's being asked for? Oh, that's great. I, I love that train of thought, because I think one of the reasons I was always so drawn to the women that wrote mythopoetically as well as the men was because I knew something about my relationship to nature was tied up to my relationship with the feminine. And actually, I really needed to find out about that and will remain so. Um, so for me, um, I'm pleased there is... Uh, Mother to lover, mother to lover. It's funny because I've been leading this thing for years called the Great Mother Conference, and I'm just imagining it now. If, well, maybe the next stage is called to call it the Great Lover Conference, although I can see <laughs> all forms of mayhem, you know, galloping from that thought. But maybe that's what needs to happen. Um, you know, there's a philosopher who I love uh, called Gaston Bachelard. And he wrote one of the greatest books that anyone has ever written called The Poetics of Space. And Bachelard says, the world seeks to be admired by you. The world seeks to be admired by you. Now, that is lover statement. That is lover energy. And reading that in my little tent 20 years ago meant I realised I could start to court the earth in a way that in the past I would have wanted to court a woman. And of course, what's interesting is then when you do meet a physical person, a woman, they can smell the difference. They can scent, they can catch that there isn't desperation in any of this. It's very playful. Um, so it's an interesting, an interesting thought. The world seeks to be admired by you. You know, um, my, one of my practices again i've done i've 
talked about this many times, but it never gets dull in a way, is give something you love 12 secret names. Look at it from 12 different angles. Because it's actually, we make things holy by the quality of attention we give them. That's how we make holiness. We give it attention. Years ago, I was in a hut talking to a group of men. They were Vietnam vets about the impossibility of the return for them from that war. And I brought the notion up of could you find something that you just chose to name and name and keep looking for the beauty. And at that moment, a hawk flew into the window and died. And these men were so, we were all so heartbroken at the death of the hawk and the weirdness of it in the moment. Each man went outside and whispered 12 secret names into the ear of the hawk. You know? So that's the kind of thing on a very small scale um, that I I really believe in. You know, it's not a concept for me. That's just a, a reality. Hmm. This phrase myth ecology has come up, I believe, yeah, on your writing, uh, on your website of your school. And I don't, I don't know if I'm saying it right, um, myth ecology. And, and that does seem to be this braiding. Yeah, I just made it up, <laughs> yeah. man. Uh, myth ecology. Mythicology, mythicology, try it a few times. It's not, um, usually whenever anyone sort of creates a word, it lasts for a fraction of a second and it, I don't care. <laughs> That's fine if that happens. I don't care. But it is appropriate actually for the work that I've been doing because, um, I'm in love with the moment in stories where suddenly the earth speaks through the story. And so, in other words, if we're interested in right now in how do we talk to the earth, for me, we across species weave stories back and forth. So there are stories out there, not an unlimited amount, but there are stories out there that have for me a myth, even I can't say it, uh, a mythicology texture to it. These two things are woven together. So that's... uh, organically ended up as my work do you know I, I don't know if you've seen it but i'm making i'm making little videos for kids at the moment who are trapped at home it's so unbearable for me that these little cherubs are locked up uh with their mad families like mine uh i thought oh wow okay i'll do it i'll do it and of course it's the one thing i love it because it's the end of all credibility if you're trying to be <laughs> impressive, but but it's, it's so much more important to speak to little kids because they're they're the little the little sprouts, you know. Uh, so what I've noticed though in telling those stories for children is how many stories that I tell involve the changing of shape: a woman that is really a fox, a woman that is really a you know a man that is a bear, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I realise that organically and unconsciously. I've been led in that direction. Here's a, here's a secret of mine. I hate the word archetypes. I never use it. I think it's grotesque. It's unsexy. There's no image to it. If you've got to say something like that, you could use the word primordial, you know, a primordial energy. But archetype for me, it's, it's like a make of car. The 2020 <laughs> archetype, you know. <laughs> so I would encourage everybody to um, come up with something different. To be honest, one of the things I struggled with in men's work was rather stiff 
formalised patterning of male behaviour. Because I knew when I was a kid, actually, uh, I found it very hard to sort of emotionally stay in the shape of a little boy for more than 10 minutes. You're experiencing this probably with your child right now. They want to kind of lurch or leap into some other shape. So I am organically disposed to a wider, more fluid and playful display of the human character. I'm, I'm just more porous, I suppose. Here's another point for the history books, is that actually, if you think about the 1990s, two massive books come forward. One is Iron John, the other one is Women That Run With The Wolves. And what that does is it sets up myth for the main discussions around gender. And we all took, we all ate from that table, you know, this is a place where you learn a lot about being a woman or being a man, etc. I knew when I was getting into this, this was not going to be the main thrust of what I thought about. The main thrust of what I was going to be thinking about was probably our own delicious, troubled, grief-strewn relationship to the earth. And ironically, I think I was probably up to date with that. That was probably the right memo for me to get. For a long time, myth became a shorthand for gender exploration. Uh, and that's good, but there's a lot of it already about. So it's just not going to be a place where I put that much of my time. I really appreciate that articulation of how the orbit of men's work seemed to continually revolve around like the human and the and the personal and the personal psyche and all the rest of it. And I feel like Going back to the conversation around initiation and the rite of passage and the whole thing, you did use a phrase actually in, I believe it was on the website for the School of Myth, around the vigils that are offered through, their, through the school. I think you spoke to this sense that the, the idea that, that a fast is only about one's own ability to see themselves differently, right, is, is you know, maybe interesting, but not that much of an achievement. I mean, that's how I took from it. But that there's a different kind of orbit that is meant to be reconstituted. And it seems to be revolving around the relationship to perhaps the, the soul of the earth, if that's even a fair... Yeah, and, and I would love to speak to that. So, I said earlier on that in one way or another, I feel stewed in mythic tradition since I was a kid. Um, through my parents, through my geographic location, through... Um, you know, at the bottom of my garden, uh, there's this river and the poet Ted Hughes, who in England is extremely well known, used to fish. And fishing was an enormous thing for him. It was a massively erotic form of hunting. And he's a controversial figure, but you're bumping up against that kind of thing all the time. There's only 10 miles away from here is where Robert Graves wrote the first iteration of The White Goddess when it had the wonderful title of The Roebuck in the Thicket, which not many people know about, but he was in England at the end of the war, and he wrote it here. So I've always been around it. So I recognised the genius of what Robert and others were doing, but I actually had a slightly different root system, and that root system is essentially bardic. And the bardic mode is that at a certain point you go out and get absolutely reforged in the natural world. You don't have um, 
you don't go out with any expectations about becoming a nice guy or a more responsible member of, you know, the Iron Age community you're in. You go out to see if you get struck by lightning or not. The stakes are very high. And, of course, anybody listening to this will go, well, hold on, isn't that what the Lakota do? Isn't that what the Choctaw do? Isn't that what the, uh, you know, the Miwok do? Well, you'd be right. The The kind of devouring nature of Western culture where we're basically going out to get fixed with nature as a backdrop is abhorrent. It's natural when you recognise that culturally we are adolescent. That's where we are. It's very weird for me that nine times out of ten, if someone is going out into the fast in the forest, even if they are 65 years old, the root issues around it are adolescent issues. There are still doorways they need to step through. Whereas in actual fact, rites of passage, it's a much broader world than just the adolescent to the adult. But because we are so frozen in the groove of devouring, we go out and we go, well, okay, I'm going to devour this now. And the wonderment of the vigil, the horror, the divine horror of the vigil is that it eats you. You get eaten. Gobble, gobble, gobble. That's why I love it so much. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was actually in the opening of uh, Die Wise, the book by Stephen Jenkinson, where I, I first encountered, I believe, your, your words. But you had a phrase, something like, yeah, speaking to people going abroad and gobbling ayahuasca as, a, as another attempt to find their own selves differently. But I, I wonder again, like, what is it about that consumptive nature that is perhaps showing itself up even now as the world itself seems to be, like you said at the beginning, instigating some kind of threshold or rite of passage of which it's easy to continue to hold humans at the center. And yet, and yet there seems to be something else afoot. Yes, I mean, isn't it interesting that the whole reason why we're all on lockdown is because we can, we, we can travel to so many places these days. We are actually, my question for me today is, are we actually overconnected? Am I overconnected? Is this an opportunity to actually, you know, limit? I, the way I think about it is at the moment I'm sitting with the goddess of limit. I'm sitting with the goddess of limit. Um, it is unwise for me or anybody else at this second to say anything too emphatic about actually what is happening. Because, you know, guess what? We don't know what is happening. And again, when we try and deliver our pithy little statements, what we are doing is trying to stabilise a moment that... We need to sit in the enormity of it. We need to be uncomfortable. I am profoundly uncomfortable, despite my, uh, in a way, my ease in the first few weeks of this. It's, it's, it's getting more acute now. And as a guide, as a wilderness guide, you never encourage people to speak too readily, too quickly about the encounter because you don't know what it is yet. And you are neutralizing you're pulling the stinger out 
effectively if you make two moves too many, too quick. So that's the distinction I made earlier on between, yes, on the one hand, I do believe we're an initiatory experience, but I don't necessarily know how um, well that's going to go for us. The initiation is not coming from the human, but the more than human. And the thing for all of us individually to chew on is what it, is it an initiation into? The way, I, the way I see it is we've had this general pandemic, but all of us at the moment are not celebrating or investigating it in the way that a village does. We are like little hermits. We're like little each house right now. There's millions of houses which are like these little alchemical cells where all sorts of things connected to this are getting played out in our family dynamics. They're, it's all present if we just have the eyes to see the thing. Some of those alchemical experiments are going to boil over. Some of them are going to make gold. Some of them, the fire will go out beneath them. So that's a, an odd set of images, but that's how I, I see this at the moment. Based on your experience guiding people in that liminal space how can people be at the ready right now you know in a meaningful way without trying to make sense of it too quickly but to be to be engaged in some fashion you know with some sense of skillfulness you know uh again i i want to all i'm interested in right now is anything that has a great deal of love at its center or some major wisdom the rest can go to hell I just <laughs> looking for love and for wisdom. And that's what I wish for everybody else. So remain curious to what is going on around you. There's many people at the moment, my emails full of uh, well-informed spiritual types saying, oh, this was always going to happen because of the degradation of the West. I hope you feel good now. Look, look what's happened. For me, that is an irresponsible, useless thing to do to people right now. I am interested in not an, not spiritual imposition. I'm interested in spiritual invitation. This is an invitation, man. I know it's terrifying. I know we are scrabbling to catch up with the encounter. It could be argued that the only reason this is happening is because we have so viciously reneged on initiations and rites of passage between us and the wild. But this is the moment that we are in. And... Um, I, I'm, I just know right now we need, so in other words, what I'm saying, I'm rambling a bit in, but what I would say is let's just sit down and see what happens next, you know, stay curious to it. Uh, but let's not issue, including myself, too many uh, protestations about it. Hmm. I think we're getting close to the completion here. And, uh, you know, I'd love to maybe end with, uh, a story, I think I caught just a bit of it, but it was this sense that we are out of the time of the horse and into the oh, time yeah. of the wolf. Yeah. Yeah, and I feel maybe that might be an appropriate uh, myth to leave us with. Okay, I'd love to do that. So once upon a time, there were these three brothers. They were the uh, sons of a czar, a Russian czar. And the oldest two, who are called uh, Dmitri and Vasily, they ride off on their horses. They're playboys, really, and they go missing. And the youngest son, who no one has any time for, really, um, goes out looking for them. He's the kind of the runt of the litter, really. 
but the lad is on his horse, he's called Ivan, and he comes to a huge dark forest. And in the front of the forest, there is a rock and it says this. It issues what you would call an initiatory statement. If you go left, if you go left, you will die, but your horse will live. If you go right, your horse will die, but you will live. So if he goes one way, he dies, goes the other way, the horse dies, something like that. So I'm afraid for Horsey, he makes a decision that he's going to go right. After a couple of days, he's pulled off the horse by a wolf that gobbles up the horse. And he's sitting there hyperventilating. And the wolf looks at him and says, listen, if you want to find your brothers, you are going to have to give up riding on the back of a horse. That horse that is all the domestic sensibilities, all the stuff you've grown up with. It's not a time for the horse anymore. This is going to be a time for the wolf. I run differently. I breathe differently. I think differently. Get on my back. So the young lad gets on the back of the wolf and is catapulted into one um, disastrous encounter after another. Wonderfully in stories, you sometimes learn, you know, you learn by your mistakes. All of the time, whilst he's actually trying to find his brothers, he gets caught up with all sorts of encounters with uh, animals, um, disputes with kings, and eventually someone called the fair Ilana, who lives at the very edge of the world. Other stories they'd sometimes call her Vasilisa. And if we were in Russia, Ian, right now, if I even mentioned the word Ilana, everyone in the household would sigh. <sighs> Ilana has arrived. And it's the combination of the boy that rides the back of a wolf the wolf itself and the woman from the very edge of the world that in the end bring back unity between the centre of the kingdom and the wild edge. So you no longer have the false dichotomy of culture in one hand and wildness in the other. What you have through their shenanigans is a culture of wildness. And that's, I think, really right now what we need. That is a deeply beautiful Aboriginal reality. Mm. Thank you, Martin. It's a pleasure. Thank you for listening to today's Mythic Masculine podcast. If you liked what you heard, be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you're listening, and leave a comment. And if you'd like to support future episodes, head over to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash Ian Mack. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash I-A-N-M-A-C-K to become an ongoing funder. Thank you.